Amen. God's word is incredible. The news we come to celebrate on this Easter morning is incredible. And I want to say, if you're new here, our practice is typically to work through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, allowing God to speak clearly through his word to us. By doing so, it doesn't, it, I, I don't get to set the agenda, but God in his word sets the agenda for us. In the last several months, we've been working through the book of Genesis, particularly the life of Abraham, and the Lord has brought us in his kindness to a relevant passage for us together from the life of Abraham, a very relevant passage for this Easter morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, or a device with you, or you can look on on the screen behind me, find Genesis 22. Find Genesis 22. If you received a bulletin when you came in, you'll find notes on the back of that that you can feel free to fill out, follow along with, disregard, whatever's easiest for you. But we'll be looking at Genesis 22 together, verses 1 to 19. Here's what the Word of God says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they were both, so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel of the Lord said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. 
As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of God. I want to begin this Easter message with something no one is likely expecting. I want to begin with a quote from popular atheist author Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, talks about our passage, Genesis 22, and here's what he has to say about it. Richard Dawkins said, God ordered Abraham to make a burnt offering of his longed-for son. Abraham built an altar, put firewood upon it, and trust Isaac up on top of the wood. His murdering knife was already in his hand when an angel dramatically intervened with news of a last-minute change of plan. God was only joking, after all, tempting Abraham and testing his faith. A modern moralist cannot help but wonder how a child could ever recover from such psychological trauma. By the standards of modern morality, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying into asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. I was only obeying orders. And yet, the legend is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. Well, I don't think I have to explain much to show you that Dawkins is obviously not a fan of the passage before us. But Dawkins, as usual, I think misses the point. First and foremost, he, Dawkins as an atheist is appealing to some sort of moral universal standard, and yet he believes that the world is nothing more than matter and motion and, and material, that there is no objective overarching purpose for the universe. If the world is nothing but matter in motion, the result of a cosmic accident, why in the world does he think what happened in Genesis 22 is wrong? There's not going to be any reckoning on any day for anybody, no judgment day. And if you notice in the quote, he says, by the standards of modern morality. And what's so interesting is, as we all have seen, modern morality is always shifting and changing. So what might be right or wrong to Dawkins today could be very wrong in the eyes of the world tomorrow. Dawkins has no ground to stand on for talking about how he perceives this text to be. But beyond that, he misses the whole point of the story because God never intended for Abraham to do any harm to Isaac, nor did God change his plan, nor was God joking. No, we're told in verse 1 that this was a test. James chapter 2 says that this event demonstrated that Abraham truly did trust God. That the whole point of testing Abraham can only be understood after understanding that time and time again, 
He blew it. In isolation, this story seems unusual and horrific, but in context, we see why God might test Abraham. Think about this. Previously, Abraham had feared both Abimelech and Pharaoh to the point of lying about his wife and giving her away to these wicked rulers. I'm sure that was a very awkward conversation when he got home, right? And Abraham also feared that God might not be trustworthy. So he sought to provide his own heir, his own promised son, both through a guy named Eleazar and through Ishmael by adultery with a lady named Hagar. And so now that this promised son has come, this whole episode exposes whether Abraham's love was ultimately for the gift or for the giver. Did he ultimately misplace his love for God in his love for his son? And we also see a clear example, fruit and evidence from Abraham's heart that he loved and feared God first and foremost. Look at verse 12 with me. Here's what the angel of the Lord says. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And we must understand what exactly Abraham's faith was in, because sometimes we think of these Old Testament prophets as just guys following a voice in their head. Let me tell you this Abraham was not some madman just following this voice, this inner voice in his head. No, we're actually told what undergirded Abraham's faith. Look at verse 5. Look at his confidence he has here. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. God, Abraham so trusted God's promises that he knew that somehow, some way, Isaac was coming back out of this with him. Hebrews 11 gets us inside Abraham's brain a little bit. Look what Hebrews 11 has to say. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed that if needed, God would raise Isaac from the dead. But regardless, Abraham knew that somehow, some way, he would receive him back. Because ultimately, the question is never what, what our faith is in or, or how much faith we have, but who our faith is in. He knew God. He knew God's power. He knew what God has done. And so he could put his faith there. And finally, I think we need to recognize this story is not a, a prescriptive passage for us. It's not telling you that on this Easter day, you need to take one of your sons and go put them out on wood on top of a mountain. That isn't the point that's being told here, and Dawkins seems to miss that in his quote, didn't he? And, but we are seeing a unique foundation laid here. A ram in the thicket, sacrificed just as God would later command him to do, and it even happened in the place that God would command it to be done. Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham was at, was a very significant place. Look what 2 Chronicles tells us about Mount Moriah. 2 Chronicles 3.1. 
Then Solomon, that's a guy named David's son, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. Solomon wrote some books of the Old Testament. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So Mount Moriah, where Abraham is with his son getting ready to sacrifice him and a, and a ram being provided, was in what would later be Jerusalem on a spot where the temple would later be built. Think about that. So as future Israelites would offer bulls and goats, whether in the wilderness or in the temple, it was meant to draw their minds back to this account, back to this story. So we have several themes all begin to converge. This theme of sacrifice, this giving of a son, this resurrection, so to speak, and they all begin to converge here. So I hope we can begin to see why this passage is so significant for us on Easter Sunday. And the text finds its climax as Abraham raises the knife. The text almost goes in slow motion. And God sends an angel to interrupt, and this is what happens. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide, Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. That is the message of Genesis 22, and that is the message of Easter. By the announcement that God will, this announcement that God will provide isn't a promise that God will provide everything we want, rather that God will provide everything we need. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And again, this, he's, he's answering that God will provide the answer to the deepest problem in our world, the problem of sin, the problem of evil. God would provide for Abraham, and we'll look at these points together, a sacrifice, a son, and salvation. And God has provided for us a better sacrifice, a better son, and better salvation in the person of Jesus. Let's consider first that God provided a sacrifice. God provided a sacrifice. Look at verse 1 of chapter 22 with me. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. We see echoes of the first calling of Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 that God called him out of a pagan nation, revealed himself to him out of sheer grace, and he promised Abraham land 
offspring and blessing. So Abraham went out of his homeland to the place where God would show him. And here, Abraham is following the Lord to the place of which God had told him. He doesn't even know quite where he's going. He just knows he has to go there. And look what happens next. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So first, begin to notice that Isaac begins to play a role here. They're both went up together. Isaac, we don't know quite how old he was, but we know he's old enough to carry wood for the altar He's old enough to speak to his father, and he's smart enough and old enough to put together that they're carrying wood for a sacrifice and ask some questions about this situation. So Isaac obviously must have had a lot running through his mind, but notice Abraham's confidence again. He says, son, verse 8, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. A lamb would be provided, a sacrifice would be made, and it wouldn't be Isaac who would be sacrificed. God would provide a lamb. And God would go on to establish a system of sacrifices with lambs and bulls, and this is what the book of Leviticus is all about. I know that can be a hard book to make it through if you've ever done a a Bible in a year plan. You know, that's where the plan really begins to become difficult, right? But there's one example there in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16 with what's called the Day of Atonement, when a sin offering would be offered in the most holy place, that a scapegoat would be provided and slaughtered in the place of sinners. And this is picked up by a guy named Isaiah, and and, and hundreds of years before Jesus would ever come on the scene, he gives us a prophecy of a servant who would suffer and be sacrificed. And here's what Isaiah would prophesy. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. And Israel hears all of this, and they're left asking the same question that Isaac asked Where is the lamb? 
And thousands of years later, a man named John the Baptist would come on the scene and answer the question by saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John was speaking about Jesus Christ. God would provide a sacrifice, but Jesus Christ is a better sacrifice. God provided a sacrifice in the place of Isaac, but Jesus Christ is a better sacrifice. Sacrifice. He is the ultimate lamb that the Lord would provide. On Friday, he died on a cross and he became the sacrifice that would be provided. He was what the Day of Atonement was pointing us toward. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, afflicted, smitten by God and afflicted. He was a lamb led to slaughter, crushed and put to grief. He was an offering for our guilt on the cross. He died as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Here's what John would later write in 1 John. He would say 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. A propitiation, a payment, a satisfaction of death. That he died to pay the debt we owe due to our sin. He paid our debt. He bore our wrath. He was sacrificed in our place. Jesus is the lamb God promised to provide, a burnt offering. And this is what it meant when Jesus cried out as he died, It is finished. He was sent to live a perfect life in our place, a sinless life, and to die as the perfect substitute for sinful people. God promised to sacrifice, and Jesus is the better sacrifice. But we also see that God provided a son, that God provided a son. Look at Genesis 22, verse 9. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, And laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I now know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. God provided a lamb, a sacrifice, but he also provided a son. All of Abraham's life, there has been this promise of a son through his barren wife, Sarah. And last week in Genesis 21, we saw that this son was finally given and that Isaac was the son of promise who would be provided and come through a miraculous birth. And we also saw just a moment ago how Isaac has sort of been provided through a kind of resurrection. That Abraham received him back from certain death. And if anything declared how loved this promised son was, it was that God would provide a lamb in his place. Isaac was a sinner. He had no right in and of himself not to die. And yet God protected him from death. 
Isaac is a beloved son. Notice the refrain of the text. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Verse 12, we see that he says, For I know that you fear God, seeing that you not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. Isaac is of the promised son, his only son through Sarah, and the son of his love. And this son was provided and protected by the power and the promise of God. But friends, God has given a better son. Jesus is a better son. I hope we don't I hope we don't just miss out on incredible truth just because a verse is popular. John 3:16 is such a popular verse. If you ask somebody on the street, they'll probably just tell you that's my favorite verse, but don't miss the incredible truth here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, the Son of God, not by birth, but by sharing the divine essence with his Father, was given for us. He was given through a miraculous birth, a virgin birth. He lived a sinless life as a servant, and he, like Isaac, carried the wood of his own altar. He was a son who became a sacrifice, a promised son of love who was resurrected, not in a manner of speaking, but Jesus literally walked out of the tomb and emptied sin and death of its power. Through Isaac, God provided a sacrifice and a son, and with Jesus, the Father has provided a better sacrifice and a better son. And finally, the Lord provided salvation. The Lord provided salvation. Look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and your offspring shall, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Notice that it's through the providing of a son that God's promise would come. That the promise of Genesis 12 was for blessing and offspring and land, and they all begin to converge here. God would keep his promise, and this blessing would ultimately mean the salvation of the world, the blessing of the nations. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 13, commenting on this. Here's what Paul says. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And what he means is that ultimately Abraham, through his offspring, would be the heir of the world. That his offspring would possess the gates of his enemies and that through it the world would be saved from sin. Now I want to show you something absolutely incredible. Not only does this passage involve a promised son being received back from death, we saw that it took place 
on Mount Moriah, the site of the future temple. But did you notice what day it took place on? Notice verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. On the third day. And throughout the Bible, the third day is always a signal that something huge is coming. Think about this. God appeared to Moses on Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments on the third day. Look at Exodus 19.11. God says, and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Joshua led the nation of Israel through the Jordan on the third day. Joshua 1.11, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go into the land to take possession that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Jonah was inside of the fish, right, for three days. Days. I could go on, but here's the point. God's salvation and promise comes on the third day. And this is what led Paul to write one of the earliest Christian confessions. Look what he says. This is written before any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were ever written. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he wrote and that he that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, for Paul, the scriptures here would be the Old Testament. None of the New Testament was written yet when Paul was writing. First uh, Corinthians, it's the, old, it's the oldest New Testament book that was written. So he's making allusions here to the Old Testament, and he says, hey, Christ died according to the Old Testament. We've seen that in Isaiah 53 and other passages. And he says Christ was also raised on the third day. And here we see all these expectations from Mount Sinai to Joshua to Jonah. All of these things are how Paul could say that the third day resurrection was in accordance with the scriptures. On the third day, the son of promise would be received back. On the third day, Jesus Christ would rise from the dead and empty the grave of its power. The Lord would provide salvation and Jesus is a better salvation. Jesus is a better salvation. Think about this, how amazing it is that Abraham loved God and would spare his own son. Oh, what faith. Oh, what love. Oh, but there's a far more incredible reality. Something far greater, and that is that God would give his son for you. And because of that, you can have all things necessary for eternal life with God. If you hear nothing else I said this morning, hear this from Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See the logic. If God could do the greatest thing of offering his son, how could he not do the lesser things of giving you all things? And this all things isn't just anything you want. 
in the context of Romans 8, it's the all things he references back in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And here's what he says there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we get told that these all things in verse 35, look what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear this, the cross and the resurrection are blood-bought, grave-emptying certainties of God's love for us. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. It is assurance that nothing, not anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from God's love and that he will cause it to work together for the good of those who are in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Mark it down. Abraham gave his promised son, yet God provided a substitute. God provided his promised son. And friends, we've been in a season of uncertainty, haven't we? 2020 was one heck of a year, right? It was, I think we all would love to hit do over and do it again. But let me tell you, that through a season of uncertainty, the empty tomb gets the final word. And the way to respond to this isn't with that sort of pride and unbelief of a Richard Dawkins, as if he would do better, but rather with humble faith to believe in what Jesus has done as the Son of God and in his death, burial, in resurrection, to receive what God has provided, to by faith take hold of all of God's promise, and to turn from trusting in our sin and ourselves, and to turn to trust in Jesus Christ by faith. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord has provided from beginning to end salvation from sin, full and free, apart from any of your own merits or works. Freedom from the guilt that haunts your soul. New life empowered by the Spirit. Salvation found only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And my call to you today is if you have never received salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can call on Him right where you are. The Bible says that If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The invitation is whosoever, regardless of background, 
regardless of whether you've ever stepped foot in a church before or not, regardless of what you might have going on or whatever you think would make you the exception, put it aside, whosoever believes shall have eternal life, be restored to God in relationship, be given new life, receive the Holy Spirit and be transformed for an eternity. If you have never done that, call on him right where you are and talk to somebody. If you still have questions, you still want to talk more, if this has pricked your heart, friends, we have far more important things to do today than whatever we might be getting to. Friends, there's no better time to get right with God than today. And he has extended the offer through giving his son for you. And in the moments ahead, we're going to listen, actually, to a song that's going to prompt us. I encourage you to sing along if you feel comfortable. You can reflect however you feel necessary. And if you want to talk, meet at the Connect desk. I'd love to talk with you and call out to him right where you are. But this Easter, as we reflect on the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, I pray we would be empowered anew by the good news of God's sacrifice, of his Son, and of our salvation. That we would enjoy afresh the power of his resurrection and feel assured in the promise of our own. And I pray that we would not reject God's glorious provision. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have come to live the life none of us could live, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise again from the dead to defeat death, to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life and a future resurrection for us. We're thankful that you spoke of this through the life of Abraham and Isaac, through Moses, through Joshua, through on and on and on from there, the one message that your whole Bible would send to us is that Jesus is alive and that we can receive him today. I ask that right now, if there be anybody within the sound of my voice here who has not encountered you, that they would leave here today declaring that you are alive and that they have heard clearly through your word that they would confess you as the Lord over their life and place their faith in you. And I pray for those of us who do know you, who for this, who this season is very sacred and special to, that you would renew in us a passion for you, a love for you, and renew in us just a, a, a resting in the fact that you have risen and that we can rest in your resurrection power today. I ask that you would do a work in us in this time of response. And we ask that you would be honored in everything that's done. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Told the ocean you can.
we come with the message that Jesus is alive, <laughs> and that you can know him today through faith in him, through turning from sin and trusting in Jesus alone to save you. And today we close, we're sent out, we do a, a, a benediction, a promise from God's word to send us into the world as representatives of this message, as people who have encountered this risen Lord and, and have news to share. And our benediction comes from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. Happy Easter.